This is the account of the family line of Abraham's son, Isaac. Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean from Padan Aram, and sister of Laban the Aramean. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. The Lord answered his prayer, and his wife Rebekah became pregnant. The babies jostled each other jostled each other within her, and she said, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment, so they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel, so he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. The boys grew up, and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once, when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country, famished. He said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. That is why he was also called Edom. Jacob replied, first sell me your birthright. Look, I am about to die, Esau said. What good is the birthright to me? But Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank and then got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. Genesis 25, 19 through 34. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Well, it's great seeing you this morning. Um, my name is Andrew, one of the pastors. Thank you, Lauren, for the scripture reading today. Um, hey, before I launch into my teaching, I just have to say this is um, a really cool moment for me personally. Um, as you know, we are, are praying all the time for God to move and work in power in our church, in our midst. And I just, there's a testimony of that happening here in our church. We have um, some of my good friends, Sal and Talia, are here for maybe the first time in about a year. Can you guys put it together for Talia? We learned that last year, we learned that Talia had a form of bone cancer, and she's been going through lots of treatment and has been immunocompromised, so she's been having to sort of distance herself from the community, but she's now in remission. God has heard our prayers. She's a major fighter, and she is back. Uh, Talia, we love you so much. Thank you for your courage through this journey. We all could learn a lot from you, and we have. So thank you so much. Um, okay, so with that, um, how are you guys liking those, the story of Genesis so far? It's pretty wild stuff, isn't it? So uh, so, uh, so far in Genesis, um, has, it's sort of told this story of how God has made a beautiful world that's full of all of his goodness and delight. And from chapter 3 on, it's telling the story about how God is working to redeem uh, the world that has now been corrupted by human rebellion and sin. Now, the way that God does that is very particular. He does that by choosing one family from all the families of the earth to bless. That's a Bible word we're going to get into. 
And the idea is that he's chosen this family, and that chosen family will receive God's blessing and in turn bless all of the other families of the earth. And this is what it means to be a priest, by the way, which is what the New Testament says that you are. You are a priest. We, as a priest, we host God's presence for others to witness and to experience, and then we also carry God's blessing to our community. And this, if you've been around Riverbend the last couple of months, you know that this has been coming up a lot. The reason why this is coming up a lot is because this is a major plot line in the Bible, and it's a plot line that you and I are meant to join as characters in the story. The Bible isn't just something for us to passively observe. It's a story of how God's redeeming the world, and it's an invitation for us to join him. And the way that we join him is by receiving God's blessing, and then carrying God's blessing to our community. Now, of course, we believe the ultimate fulfillment of that covenant promise is Jesus, who was, of course, a descendant of Abraham, who opened up salvation through the cross for anyone who believes. But that sort of story of Messiah, that comes like much later in the story, like 1,500 years later. Genesis 25, where we are today, is when the redemption project is still just getting off the ground. It's still just in its infancy. And it's going okay. Like God is doing his thing. God is being faithful and he's moving in power. Um, And Abraham and Sarah and Isaac, the characters so far in the story, they have their shining moments. But Today's story exposes their family drama. And you thought the Bible wasn't relatable. There is nothing more relatable than a good old-fashioned sibling rivalry. Is anyone else having like flashbacks to childhood right now like I am? Yeah, my brother was like smarter and stronger and more handsome than me. Um, I'm not resentful at all. I'm just happy for him. Um, There's a lot of wisdom in this story. There's a lot that we can learn from it. So let's get into it. So here's, uh, just to kind of bring you up to speed, if you're new to the story of the Bible, here's the family tree. Abraham and Sarah give birth to Isaac in their old age. We covered that for many weeks, actually. And then Isaac uh, marries Rebekah. And then Rebekah gives birth to Jacob and Esau. And the story centers on Jacob because God chose him over Esau to be the one who would receive and carry the same blessing as Abraham and Isaac. Is that making sense so far? That's super important. It's very crucial to understanding the tragic irony of Jacob's rivalry with Esau. Here's the tragic irony. Jacob's entire life story is about him manipulating and swindling his way into the blessing that God already intended to give him. Isn't that sad? So Jacob's this skeevy dude, right? And you need a bit of the backstory to understand the full weight of it, appreciate the drama here. In the ancient world, the firstborn birthright was everything. The firstborn son held a special position of privilege and responsibility within the family. Duke, I think of you, you're the firstborn son of your father. So you would receive the birthright in the ancient world. And the birthright went something like this. It was a blessing. And at the end of his life, a father would pass down his blessing to his firstborn son. And it it was comprised of several things. Number one, it was his authority 
to make decisions and to guide the family and to work for the well-being of the family. It also was an inheritance. The firstborn would receive a double share of the family's wealth and also, thirdly, honor. The firstborn son would receive a blessing of unique status among the larger community. So this was a big deal, regardless of what family you're a part of. Uh, being the firstborn was a distinct privilege. But especially when you come from the line of Abraham, the family that God had promised to make into a great nation. Possessing the birthright was like the difference between becoming like the next in line to the throne or being Prince Harry. Right? Nothing against the guy. He's got the 20th most popular podcast on Spotify with his wife, Meghan Markle. That blows my podcast out of the water. But he's nowhere close to becoming the king of England, and he never will be. So, so, so that's something that's significant that's happening here in the story when you have multiple sons. Now, who gets the birthright if you have twins? Well, in we, we learn here that it's uh, whoever comes out first is still the firstborn, right? Uh, but except in this case, it's not that simple. So Rebecca has this crazy experience while she's pregnant. There's uh, no such thing as like a 12-week sonogram. By the way, we have several families in the room here who are about to have their, their child like in the next couple of days. Uh, so this is like very real to, you, to many of you who are pregnant. Um, but she so, so she, so she doesn't know, Rebecca doesn't know if she's having a boy or a girl or twins or whatever, but she was feeling this, uh, this like wrestling match that's going on inside of her womb, which sounds so uncomfortable. Um, in fact, I remember when Grace was pregnant uh, many years ago with our twin girls, we, uh, we had to have sonograms all the time because there's some complications. And so we were having sonograms at least once a week, and then towards the end there, we were having them almost every day. And we would watch the sonogram, and Grace would always talk about how much movement there was. And I kid you not, there were several times where we're looking at the image on the screen of our babies, and they're literally like elbowing each other and kicking each other and stuff like that because there wasn't enough room for them in my wife's poor stomach that was being stretched out in every direction possible because there were two humans inside of her. And so she was feeling that kind of wrestling match too. So Rebecca doesn't know, she doesn't have modern medicine, she doesn't know what to make of this. And so she goes to inquire of the Lord. She asks God about it. And this is what the Lord says. The Lord says this, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you will be separated. One will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. In other words, what he's saying is you're going to have twins. They are going to be fathers of nations. They're going to be rivals, but the older will serve the younger. In other words, with his family, God is doing something unexpected and new. He's subverting the birthright custom, and he's blessing the secondborn. And this is hugely significant. This is a, uh, becomes another major theme or motif throughout the Bible, that God does the unexpected. He gives his authority, his inheritance, and his honor to the overlooked and to the powerless. Is anyone excited about this or happy about this? Yeah, you, this is good news. You do not have to be elite to be blessed by God or accepted in the family of God. You do not have to be great in order to be, be blessed. In fact, what God is doing here by subverting the birthright uh, custom 
is he's demonstrating that his heart is bent towards the powerless. His heart is bent towards those who are oppressed. And we actually see this again and again and again, not just with Jacob and Esau, but also with Joseph, and also with King David, and also with Samuel, and many others throughout the biblical storyline. God's heart is not like the hearts of man. He looks at things that humans don't look at, and his heart is actually bent towards the powerless. This is good news. So Rebecca goes, finally, she goes into labor, and Esau comes out first, and then the second boy comes out holding on to Esau's ankle. In other words, symbolically, he's already contesting the birthright. He's saying, bro, get out of my way. I'm going to be firstborn. I'm going to be the one who gets God's power and gets God's blessing. By the way, the name Jacob just means heel snatcher. That's what it means. Uh, which, you know, uh, Rebecca got pretty literal with her son's names. Esau just means hairy, and Jacob means heel snatcher. By the way, my parents were really literal in naming me as well. Andrew comes from the Greek word andros, which just means the man, <laughs> which I know what you're thinking. You're like, yeah, they nailed it. They nailed it. I agree, they did. Let me live in the delusion, okay? Just let me live here. I like it. So this becomes a pattern with Jacob. Throughout his life, Jacob tries to seize power and seize blessing instead of trusting the word that God gave his mom. And it wreaks havoc in their family. Earlier, we read the story of how Esau came home from a hunting trip. He's exhausted and hungry, so he asks Jacob to share his dinner. Classic little brother move. What, is, what does Jacob do? He says, what are you going to give me if I share with you some of my dinner? See, your kids aren't the only kids who have trouble sharing. Isn't that encouraging? So he makes Esau give over, hand over his birthright. And there's a whole thing with Esau there too, which we really don't have time for, where, where Esau doesn't value what has been given him. He squanders his blessing, and that's a tragic story all, all the same. But later in the same story, which we didn't have a chance to read today, uh, Isaac is very old, he's about to die, he's completely blind, and Jacob does the same thing all over again. He seizes the moment, he pretends to be Esau, he tricks his dad into giving his blessing to him instead of to his older brother. Like I said, Jacob is a skeevy dude. But before we like criticize him, let's take an honest look inward, because I think this is a very human problem that many of us are also guilty of. In fact, I think our generation has made an art form out of looking out for number one. In fact, low-grade narcissism is actually a celebrated personality trait in our culture, and I think it's tragic. Personally, I think it stems from secular humanism and Machiavellian ethics from the 17th century and sort of the early Renaissance period, and it's sort of grown into a full-blown philosophy of life in our day to love ourselves, love yourself first. And so what ends up happening is we rationalize things like greed and lust and all kinds of self-absorption, which is actually in many ways very, very unhealthy. Now, of course, 
the secular world is going to have that kind of ideology. But that way of thinking, I, I think, unfortunately, has colonized Christian thought too. Have you ever heard people say things like, you know what, God helps those who help themselves. And then they quote that like it's a scripture, like it's from the Beatitudes or something. Let me tell you, that is not a biblical idea at all. It's unbiblical. God doesn't help those who, bless them, who help themselves. He blesses those who trust in him. He blesses those who trust in him. The Beatitudes say things like this. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. That's the kind of ideology that we get from the scripture. Don't take matters into your own hands. Don't figure it out on your own. Don't look out for number one. Look out instead for the interests of others. So before we point fingers at Jacob, what about us? What about your own selfish ambition? Have you ever envied someone else's gift and think that that ought to belong to you? Have you ever manipulated a situation in order to get ahead or to pursue some rivalry with someone else? That's the point here. And the point isn't to condemn you or I. The point is actually to humanize Jacob. He's wrestling with the very core sins that we are also familiar with ourselves. Just like his grandfather Abraham and his father Isaac, Jacob is falling into this trap of taking matters into his own hands instead of trusting God at his word. And this is the exploration and this is the reflection for us as Jesus people today because we wrestle with the exact same thing. Are we going to take matters into our own hands? Are we going to trust ourselves, the original deception of the snake in the Garden of Eden, or are we going to trust God at his word? Remember, remember the example of Jesus is in the complete opposite direction as Jacob. And in Philippians chapter 2, Paul is talking about Christ's example. He says, Has this, have this same mindset or have this same attitude as Christ Jesus. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. And I just believe from my heart that this is the kind of people that we want to become by the power of the Holy Spirit. And I think that's the lesson, the cautionary tale of Jacob's life. And the irony is that Jacob did not need to cheat in order to get ahead. He thought he did, and that's what he did his entire life. But God planned to bless him all along. Which leads me to my second reflection, which is this. Jacob, uh, Jacob, in his attempts to seize blessing and power, doesn't actually change God's determination to bless his life. He still gets blessed. But the consequences of his selfish actions follow him for decades. So I think the highlight here, uh, if we're looking at this story, is actually that God is the protagonist and he is filled uh, with mercy and, and with kindness. Notice he doesn't say, listen, Judah, or listen, Jacob, to hell with you, man, like you've lied and you've manipulated for the last time. That's not the story that we read. In fact, it's a, it's a much different story. Yes, Jacob is a deeply flawed character, but 
His calling is still his calling, and God is still determined to bless him. But man, does he pay the consequences for his selfish ambition. Man, his life is a case study on why you don't want to live the way that he lives. Here are just a few of the consequences of Jacob's actions. Number one, his deceitfulness and scheming leads to the complete breakdown of his family. Esau's filled with bitterness. He wants to kill him. His relationship with his mom and dad are never the same. He has to flee for his life. Check this. Jacob has to flee for his life. He spends decades exiled from the place that God promised that he would inherit. And so the fact that he was like trying to make things happen and strive to seize blessing, it actually delayed God's blessing by several decades. God was still faithful, but it took a lot longer than it would have if Jacob had not just trusted in God in the first place. So he had to flee for his life. And I I wonder if there are some blessings in our life that are delayed because of our continued trying to figure it out ourselves and trying to seize for power and blessing instead of trusting in God. This is one of the consequences he experiences. Number three, uh, he can't be trusted. Jacob, his integrity is terrible. He has no credibility. So he has to start over in a new land with nothing where no one knows him. And he has no status. So he's supposed to be this blessed person. He ends up as a ranch hand for a shepherd. And he's starting completely over. He's the low man on the totem pole. It's tragic. Next, he gets a taste of his own medicine from his father-in-law, Laban. Laban tricks Jacob into marrying his older, less attractive daughter. That's brutal. That's a brutal trick. But that's the game that Jacob was playing. Jacob was cheating. If you cheat, you're going to be cheated. That's the idea here. He lives in fear of scarcity instead of in joy and contentment. See, it was his fear that he wasn't going to get what God had promised that drove him to seize for power and blessing and taking matters into his own hands. And then it actually became a self-fulfilling prophecy. Because he, his fear became reality for him. He had nothing. He was a sojourner and he was forced to look out for himself. So because he acted in that selfish way, it came back to haunt him later in life. And finally, he walks with a limp. We're going to get into that story next week where um, God wrestles with Jacob and finally sort of breaks his spirit so that he's able to surrender and trust in the Lord. All of that happened because Jacob stole the blessing that God had already promised him. And that's, those, are, those are rough consequences. And uh, again, not to uh, uh, just disparage Jacob here, I, I, I've certainly seen this in my own life with my own disobedience. And my own, sort of, I sort of wake up in the morning uh, just wanting to take the world by storm and everything else, and it's caused a lot of trouble in my life, which I could detail out for you. Uh, if you had several more hours. Um, but also, I, you know, in my life as a pastor, I see this time and again. In fact, there's a really sad uh, uh, story. I'm going to sort of um, be careful with the details so, that, so as to not to expose people. But there's a, a family in our church who um, they're, they're going through a really difficult and messy divorce uh, because the husband had actually cheated on his wife many times for many years and was living a completely double life. And uh, we heard about it after all of that 
happened, and the marriage is just sort of in shambles. And uh, so I started meeting with both uh, of them individually, and we're trying to come up with like a game plan, a strategy for is reconciliation possible, and if so, how might we get there, and where's your you know, mental health care, and who's your counselor, and all of that. So they're going through this long process, and in that process, um, the woman in, in the marriage, she was so understandably hurt by her husband's double life that she goes out and she strikes up a relationship with a whole other guy and cheats on her husband. And then that just begins to fester in all of these horrible, tragic ways. And, and now the mess is even bigger, way, way bigger than it was even in the beginning. And I remember sitting down with this person and having a conversation with her and she said to me, she said, I just don't understand how God could do all of this to us. And I had to look her in the eye and very hopefully gently and graciously, but in holding to the truth saying, this is not what God had in mind for you at all. You are sadly living in the consequences of misliving, your husband's misliving, your own misliving and it's it is causing all of these deep and utter consequences in your life now the good news is that Jesus is here you're not too far gone he's ready to rescue and save he's ready to forgive but as long as you're blaming God for the consequences that you're experiencing for your misliving you're gonna miss out on the blessing that he actually has for you and it was a hard conversation, and, uh, and, and it continues to be a hard situation. Our hearts go out to them, and we're praying for them. But that kind of story, maybe not to that degree, but that kind of story is actually quite common in our society and amongst even God's people. So the tragedy for Jacob that I think applies to us as well is that Jacob's like decades of consequences were completely unnecessary. He didn't have to go through all of that. He didn't have to blow up his family. He didn't have to have all of these broken relationships. There is no good reason for him to have to experience all of this. And this highlights a principle that is for us, which is this, that a life of sin and a life of selfish ambition is way harder than a life following in the Lord's ways. There is so much peace there's so much joy, there's so much simplicity in trusting and following in the Lord's ways instead of going in the way of our own, uh, going in our own way of sin, of selfish ambition. For example, Proverbs chapter 11, verse 5, it says this, The righteousness of the blameless makes their paths straight, but the wicked are brought down by their own wickedness. And I think this is a very hopeful promise, believe it or not. I guess the question for all of us today is, where are you being tempted to be deceitful or to seize power or to envy what someone else has or to take matters into your own hands instead of uh, following after the Lord? Those things lead to chaos and disorder. But God's protection, God's word and his instruction is actually here for your protection. And it's actually here to guide you in the way that leads to life, walking in obedience and trusting in the Lord is actually the way to a blessed life, the way to a peaceful, shalomful life. In fact, 
This is one of, I think, the biggest lies about God's moral code and ethics in the scripture. Our generation, the last, I don't know, probably 60 or so years in the West, we have looked at God's instruction as his like demand on us that is actually just more about his, him being prude or him being, uh, you know, having impossible standards. But the reality is, is that the instruction of, of the scripture is, that, is so that things will go well with you. If you walk in the ways of the Lord, things will go well with you. It will, you'll lead the kind of life that lasts. In fact, this is super encouraging. Um, there was a, this week, there was a, 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 I was here working on our, our, our kitchen, sort of managing the kitchen project, which, by the way, it's like 95% done, which is incredible. And so I was here uh, just kind of working on that with our tile installer. And out of the blue, this uh, woman who I've met here a couple of different times uh, here at Riverbend, but she's kind of in and out and traveling all over the place and not often here. And she just came in off the street and she said, hey, uh, can we pray? And so I just set aside a few minutes and I got to know a little bit more about what's going on in her life. And she is not yet a Jesus follower. I think that she's well on her way, but she hasn't quite decided to trust in Jesus yet. But she's talking about all of her lifestyle choices and the things that she's been doing, that's actually led her to a place of feeling fairly hopeless, very anxious, very depressed, and very alone. And she said, I've seen this pattern repeat over and over and over again in my life, and I really don't know what to do. And I was able to share with her uh, a very similar message to what I'm sharing with you, which is, you know, God has a lot of helpful instruction in the scripture. It's actually meant to guide you into flourishing, so that you can be like a tree planted by streams of water that bears fruit in its season. They actually thrive instead of sort of wither away and, and die. And I was so encouraged by her response because she said, you know, I've been thinking about that a lot and I couldn't agree with you more. All of the choices that I've been making, all the ways that I've been living, it's only led to more chaos. It's only led to more depression. And any time I've actually focused on like turning my attention towards the Lord and doing what he's called me to do, I've, I've just felt like wind and life in my sails again. And so we just had this beautiful moment where we were able to pray uh, for her and, and, and over her. And again, she's not yet in the family of God. She hasn't yet trusted in Jesus, but I really do believe that that's coming in her life very soon, which is very encouraging. So the Lord does not want Jacob or you to experience this deep, deep consequence from misliving. But that is Jacob's case, and that is our case when we choose to ignore his instruction. But the good news, more good news, is that the hopeful conclusion of Jacob's story is that he is better at saving than we are at sinning. He's better at saving than we are at sinning. This is Redemption, by the way, redemption is pure poetry. It's pure poetry. And this is why I think the Bible, one of the reasons why I think the Bible is so compelling is because it's poetic. Jacob's not the hero of this story. God's the hero of this story. And what we're learning through Jacob's life is that God is able to redeem what seems hopelessly broken. He's able to take what is evil and he's able to use it for good. All of Jacob's corrupt motives and all of his selfish ambition, all of Esau's impulsivity and Rebekah's deception, somehow 
God is able to take all of these deeply flawed characters and use them to bring about his redemption in the end. And it is poetically beautiful. It's amazing. So here are just a couple of things that we, that, that, to, to, pick, to pick apart here and to hold up as true. This is the reality. Here's the reality. God is faithful to the covenant promise even when we do not hold up our end. See, this is, this is what we find about God is that he is reliable and trustworthy and faithful even when we're not. And countless times throughout the story of the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, we're going to see this again and again and again, where God's people, they, they fall into more sin, more rebellion, more evil. And God is always there and holding up his side of the covenant relationship. And that is our ultimate hope. Even when we don't hold up our end, God is faithful to the promise. Number two, next thing to hold up as true in reality for us is that although we can get lost and confused, it's very easy, myself included, to get lost and confused in the chaos of life in a broken world. God is never lost. God is never confused. And he always knows the way back to Eden. He always knows how to lead us back to that place of thriving and flourishing. And that's exactly the project that he's on. He's on the project of guiding you and me back into a life of flourishing in the garden of delight. That's what he wants for you. And he's willing to guide you there if you will follow him. And the third one is this, the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. The steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. Um, This is perhaps one of the most quoted uh, statements in all of the Bible. In fact, Psalm 136 um, is a psalm of ascent. It was a song that Israel would sing on their way to Jerusalem to go celebrate the feasts. And they would sing on their way up the hill to the Mount of Olives. They would sing, the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. 36 times in, uh, in, in that one song alone, the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. And this is probably one of the first examples of this that we're going to see throughout the biblical storyline. But it's ultimately pointing us towards the cross. So hopefully what this does is sort of kind of ignites and stirs in your heart a sense of gratitude for Jesus and what he's doing, what he's capable of. Is that his love never fails and he's continuing to love even a very stiff-necked and hard-hearted people like Jacob and like us. In fact, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It's a technical verse, has some technical implications, but it's essentially the scandal of grace that I hope hits you in a fresh way today. That when we were not seeking him, when we were not turning our hearts to him, he turned his heart towards us. He loved us while we were enemies, while we were sinners, while we were far from him. He pursued us because of his great love. That is the story of the gospel. And just like the people I mentioned earlier, um, there is opportunity. This is also true for you. If, If God was going to give up on his people, then the family of Jacob is the kind of people he would give up on. The skeevy, backbiting, lying, deceptive kinds of people that they were. And yet the story of the Bible that holds as true is that he has not gone back on his word to love them and bless them. Instead of giving up on them, instead he, he, he humbled them. They surrendered to, to him, and then God blessed them. And this can be your story 
as well. Our story can be the same as Jacob's, where in the end, we get the blessing of God, we get the salvation of God, because we trust in him. So for Jacob and for us, what that meant was Jacob needed to stop trying to be the hero. Stop trying to be the hero of this story. Realizing that that's not who he is. Stop trying to save your life. Jacob, stop trying to work it out, bro. Every time you try and work it out, you just make it worse. You're you're corrupted by sin and evil. Your your ways are are not holy and righteous. They're, They're pretty messed up. Stop trying to be the hero. Stop trying to save your own life. Call out to Jesus. Call out to the Lord as Savior. And that is the hope of the gospel. Again, the Apostle Paul wrote to the Romans. He said, what a wretched man I am. This was a man who really knew how to follow the rules. In fact, he spent the early part of his life following the rules, probably better than most of us. But he says, what a wretched man I am. Who's going to rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Christ Jesus our Lord. And I know I'm speaking to some of you here who haven't yet quite come to faith in Jesus, and then there's many of you who've been walking with Jesus for a long time, but the scandal of God's grace is just the same for us. And I hope that even if you've been following Jesus most of your life, this is hitting you in a fresh way today, and you actually recognize the beauty of calling out to Christ as Savior. So the, the re- two, two reflections as we, as we end here. Number one, God's blessing is something to wait for and humbly receive, not to seize or strive for. Later in the story, there's a, there's a man uh, by the name of Simon. This is in the book of Acts. He's like a sorcerer, and he does like witchcraft type stuff or whatever. And then the people of Jesus come to town, and they have the power of the Holy Spirit. And he sees what they're able to do in the power of the Holy Spirit, And Simon the sorcerer is like, man, I need to get into some of that kind of action. So he goes up to them and he says, hey, I want to buy this power from you. Like, lay your hands on me. Let me have the same power that you have. Let me me buy it from you. And and Peter, the the, the apostle, he responds, hey, your your money's going to perish with you, man. Your, Your money's dying with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part of this ministry because your heart is not right before God. And this was, this was the reflection. So the reflection is this. God's power, his blessing, it cannot be bought. It cannot be bottled up. It cannot be controlled. God blesses and God empowers as he wills and according to his choosing. That's how it works. He's God. That's how he does it. So we can't try and reach for it or seize it. We can't like lay hold of it, bottle it up on our own. We are actually put in the same position as Jacob. We need to trust and surrender that if God says, I promise to bless you, that he actually means it and that you can trust him at his word. You can't seize it or try and grab it, but you can receive it when you trust in the Lord. Psalm 37, one of my favorites, says, Commit your way to the Lord, trust in him, and he will do this. He will make your righteous reward shine like the dawn, your vindication like the noonday sun. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret when people succeed in their ways when they carry out their wicked schemes. He's saying, listen, there are going to be those who scheme. There's going to be 
evil people who succeed, but I want you to trust in me and I want you to wait on me and I will bless you. Another similar scripture from Psalm 46 says, cease striving in the, in the NASB, cease striving and know that I'm God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. So the blessing of God, if Jacob could speak to us, I think he would say the blessing of God is worth the wait. It's worth trusting in him for. It's worth receiving instead of trying to seize and grab for ourselves. See, one of Jacob's issues that I think I can relate to is that he's got a lot of drive. He's got a lot of ambition. He doesn't want to sit on his hands. He wants to do something with his life. And I know I'm speaking to a group of people who have that similar kind of ambition. And it's not ambition necessarily that's evil. It's how it got twisted and corrupted by the fall. I remember I was 17 years old when I really came to faith in Jesus. I've been in the church my entire life, but I didn't really come to faith in Jesus until I was 17, where I understood the gospel for the first time. And um, it was during that, during that early stages of my discipleship, very, very early on, where I started to realize, wait a second, I've been asking the wrong question for my entire life. I've been asking the question that school counselors had told me to ask, which was, what do you want to do with your life? And it's a relevant question, but it was the wrong question. The right question is, God, what do you want me to do with my life? At 17 years old, I realized I had never seriously considered that question. I had always been thinking about it in terms of what did I want, not what does God want for my life. And so I decided uh, to go to a little gap year Bible college program on the island of Maui to go figure out that problem or figure out that question. Uh, in retrospect, I think it was a great, great decision. That's actually where I met Michael, who's leading worship today. It's also where I met some friends who introduced me to my wife, Grace, uh, through that time on Maui. So it's a pretty cool story of God's providence. But it was during that time when I was in uh, Bible college on Maui, 18 years old, where I began to wrestle through what does God want for my life? And what I found is that God didn't ask me to sacrifice my ambition. He wanted to purify my ambition. He wanted to purify my ambition. With the energy that we would spend on like seizing things, going out and grabbing the world by the tail and like conquering it. Instead, we devote ourselves to worshiping the Lord, meditating on his word, and seeking him. The time that we would spend on ourselves, on our passions, on what we long for and what we desire, instead we give ourselves to advancing the kingdom of God. And what I've found in my life is that God's ambition and his desire, what he wants for the world and his kingdom, is far more worthy of my ambition than what I could have dreamt up as a 17-year-old. So he's purifying the, the, things that he, the things that you are, your drive, your ambition, the things you want to accomplish in life. The Lord wants to purify that and turn it into a holy ambition that wants the kind of things that God wants. Jacob's later life, which we're going to get to in a few weeks, is a beautiful example of what God is able to do when he has a hold of someone's heart. And I hope, that it's, I hope that it can be true, hope that it can be said of me, that God has my heart, that my ambition, my longing to, to make something of my life has been purified to the point that when I strive and when I eagerly like work, I'm doing it unto God and his glory, and I'm doing it out of devotion to him. Are you guys with me? Last thought. Um, what we find is, 
in, in the story of Genesis is that God is looking for blessable covenant partners. This is a theological term that I'm going to spare you all the details on. But, uh, but he's looking for blessable covenant partners. People that have the capability that God can actually trust them with great spiritual responsibility and authority. And this is the man that Jacob ultimately became. It's not who he is today in our story, but it's ultimately what he became. He became a man who has holy ambition, who doesn't want glory for himself, but wants glory for God. Doesn't want fame for himself, but wants fame for God. And this is a major distinction between Jacob's early life and his later life. And it makes him blessable. God is able to bless a man or woman whose, whose ambition has been purified and made holy and who actually wants God to be glorified through life. So I, I often say this to myself as I'm preaching or before I preach because um, I care a lot about what we're doing here and I, and, and I care a lot about doing a good job and I want you guys to like me and think it was powerful or whatever. Um, but that messes, my ego messes with the whole experience because uh, there's part of me that, that, that still wants you to think that I'm great, the same problem that Jacob has. And so I have to pray, and I do this every Sunday on my drive-in. I always pray, God, I'm okay if I'm forgettable. I just need people to leave with an impression of Jesus. And I want you to be the one that we're celebrating here. I want you to be the lead pastor here. I want you to be the one building the church here. And it's something that I have to continually do. And sometimes even as I'm preaching, <laughs> I have to say something very similar. God, I'm happy to be forgettable if it means that you are made famous in our church and in our city. That's what I long for. And I think that's what God's looking for in a blessable covenant partner. Next, um, the next trait of someone who's blessable is someone who's looking out for the interests of others. Looking out for the interests of others, right? So God, God is blessing the family of Abraham not so that they would hoard blessing for themselves. Remember, the whole point is that they would be blessed so that they would in turn bless all of the other families of the earth. And so someone who's blessable, someone who God can trust with great spiritual responsibility, with great resource, with all that, is someone with integrity in their heart and isn't going to hoard for themselves but is going to give away what God has given. Many of you have schooled me in this over the years through your generosity and the way that you give of yourselves. And then the third trait that God is looking for in a blessable covenant partner is someone who is faithful with what they have now. Jesus tells us about this, the parable of the talents. And they're the ones who are faithful with the little that God has given them now. Are you being faithful with the bit of influence are you being faithful with the bit of responsibility and spiritual authority that God has given you now? Are you being faithful with that? Are you trustworthy with more spiritual responsibility? Well, the evidence of that is whether or not you're faithful with what God has already given you. So this is what God is looking for in blessable covenant partners. People who want God's glory, not their own. People who are looking out for the interests of others. And people who are faithful with what they have now. Let's stand and let's pray together. So, Father, we, um, we just want to say thank you that we don't have to be the hero. We couldn't handle 
we couldn't handle that pressure. We couldn't handle the pressure of being the hero. But you're willing to be that savior for us. You're willing to be that hero. And that even when we are not trustworthy or faithful, even when we don't hold up our end, you, you are still here. You are still right there for us. And so I just want to guide you in a short uh, visualizing prayer as we end here. Where you recognize, just notice in your own heart where you have been striving and trying to seize blessing instead of trusting God at his word and waiting to receive it. And I want you to just picture yourself like clutching or holding on to something with a tight grip. And recognize that when you're holding on to that thing, you can't actually receive the, the gift that the Lord wants to give you. Just notice your hesitation. If you have any hesitation of letting go. You're conflicted. You want to trust the Lord, but there's this part of you that's still like Jacob that wants to work it out himself or yourself. Just watch and wait as the Lord begins to show you that you're safe to let go. don't actually have to manage the pressure of figuring life out yourself. But you can release that thing and you can instead just embrace the blessing of God and receive the blessing of Lord, we long to be the ones who are trustworthy. As a blessable covenant partners, people that you can entrust with great spiritual responsibility and authority because we're yielded to you. We're about your fame. We're about the interests of others. faithful with what you've already given us. We want to be those people. Would you make us those people today? I just want to pray also for those who maybe have not yet received the gospel, have not yet experienced Jesus. I just encourage you to open your heart to him now. If any of this is coming out as cliche, please don't hear in that way. Please hear it from a sincere place. God has made himself available to you. If you would only cry out to him and release the, the expectation on yourself to be the hero of your own story and to instead cry out to God for salvation. He said he's near to all who call on him. And 
anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. This moment could be that moment for you. And so God, we just, we, we profess faith in you now. Some of us have done this hundreds of times where we say, I'm yours, save me, God. Some of us are doing it for the first time. So we bless your name. You are worthy. You are worthy. You are worthy of all honor and glory and praise. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, amen.